This episode was originally a live conversation at Startup Nights 2022 in Vintour. When you run a small business and venture capitalists knock at your door and say like, hey, would you like $40 million? Who the fuck would not be tempted, right? Like, we haven't made any money, not any real money anyway. Here's someone dangling a huge check in front of you. I mean, you would really have to be unhumanly strong to not at least consider that. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. David, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a real pleasure and honor to have you here today. Thanks for having me on the show. You are the founder of the open source web framework Ruby on Rails. You're also the co-founder of 37signals, the company behind Basecamp and Hey. And before we actually talk about your impressive journey, I want to start in your personal background. You are originally from Denmark, and you did your studies at the Copenhagen Business School back in the late 1990s. And you actually, when was it when you first started to code and what actually, you know, attracted you to coding? Yeah, so I wanted to become a programmer since I was a kid. I got my first computer when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tried to learn how to program when I was six years old, basically typing in programs that were at the back of a magazine. That was basically how it was done, which is uh, in the 80s. Um, and I couldn't get it. I, I just couldn't make it click. I remember not understanding something as simple as variables. Why would you assign something different to the one thing? And then, uh, whatever, a few years later, when I was in my early teens, I again wanted to learn how to program because I'd just been obsessed with video games. And I thought, I want to make video games. So I tried to learn programming again and once more utterly failed. I could not understand the basics of programming. Very frustrating so, so I gave it up. So it really wasn't until I got started with the internet in the mid to late 90s that I kind of found myself in through programming, which wasn't really programming to start with. It started with HTML, figuring out how to use HTML and uh, maybe a little bit of JavaScript um, and all the things you needed to publish on the internet. Mm -hmm. And then I had a bunch of friends who were programmers who helped me with that. Fast forward a few more years, and in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was working on a gaming website called dailyrush.dk, um, part of an incubator during the heady uh, .com boom years. And I just sort of picked up PHP as doing that because we were building this thing. There were a couple of programmers assigned to it, but I had these ideas, things I wanted to change and things I wanted to improve. And it was just frustrating to have to go through other people. If you learn to program, you can express your own ideas at your fingertips, which is an amazing feeling. So I learned just enough to help contribute, to help build this thing. But I certainly did not think of myself as a programmer at that time. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't until I started working with Jason Freed, my still business partner at 37 Signals, in 2001, that I got my first real commercial programming job. And I was not a great experienced programmer at that point. I mean, by the time I sold my services to Jason for $15 an hour, which was where we started, um, I had really only been programming for, I think, two years at that point or something like that. Um, But I knew more than he did. He was trying to learn programming at the time, and I simply connected with him over the internet through a blog post and email, and we started working together. And fast forward a few more years and we start building this Basecamp thing in 2003. Mm -hmm. I pick up the Ruby programming language and it's just this galaxy brain explosion. I find out that programming for me now is more than just a tool. Mm -hmm. It is something I can see myself in for the long term. I can see myself as a programmer. And Ruby really changed my trajectory as a programmer. And I just really dove into it and thought, like, you know what? I should get good at this. Not just proficient, not just competent. No, I should get good at this. Really good. And I dove in, started working on Ruby and Rails as part of creating Basecamp with Ruby. Back then in 2003, there were very few people in the West who were using Ruby in a commercial setting. And I was one of these people because I had the freedom 
to pick whatever programming language I wanted to use for us to build Basecamp. So I picked the one that a few people I admired were really passionate about, people like Martin Fowler and Dave Thomas, who had been writing about Ruby, again, not in a commercial setting, but to explain programming principles and concepts. Mm -hmm. But they seem very enthused by this programming language. I'm like, hey, if they like it so much and they seem to know a lot. Um, I don't know a lot, but I'll follow their lead and give it a try. And I was, of course, ever so thankful that I did. It was what turned into Ruby on Rails. It was really what accelerated my career as not just a programmer, but an open source participant. And it was what we've continued to build our entire business on here. 18 years later, I'm still working on Ruby on Rails. I'm still working on Basecamp. I'm still working on 37 Signals. What's really fascinating from, from my perspective is that despite your passion for, you know, developing and building software, you actually studied business. Why did you decide to study business and not engineering? Yeah, so part of it was that the avenues for learning programming through universities um, in Denmark, particularly at the time, were a very computer science-y way of learning programming. Mm -hmm. And that form of programming, I couldn't connect to at all. This was why I had failed to learn programming at least three times, because the kind of programming that you need to know to make video games is a very math-heavy form of programming. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I enjoy math. I'm basic proficiency in it. I don't love math at all. In fact, my senior year of high school, I deliberately failed math. Um, got an F because I was like, did you know what? This is too hard. This is going to take too much of my time to properly learn. I'm just going to opt out and I'm just going to copy all the math papers I need to turn in. <laughs> and then I'm going to fail the class. And I knew that uh, the first month of the year I knew, do you know what? I'm not going to spend my time on this. It's going to take too much time. There are other things I want to do with my time. Uh, this internet thing is really interested. I want to do internet things rather than the math things. So I just knew that that direction, that way of learning programming was not for me. I was not going to be interested in learning how to build compilers. That, just not me. That level of abstraction does not speak to me at all. I don't consider myself a computer engineer or a computer engineer, a programming engineer. Um, I consider myself a software writer and it's a completely different paradigm and self-conception. Um, and it wasn't until I discovered Ruby that I found an expression, an outlet for that. And that was not what was being taught in any school. There were no programs who were going to teach you how to be a software writer. There were programs who were going to teach you how to be a computer scientist, mm -hmm. but I didn't want to be a scientist. I didn't want to be a computer scientist. So that didn't appeal to me. Versus business, I've always had an interest in. I ran all sorts of businesses and very early on a newspaper route at age, I don't know, what, 10. I worked at a grocery store. I sort of had an appreciation for, well, making money because it was a way to give yourself freedom and the things you wanted. And especially coming from a background where we didn't have a bunch of spare money for me to spend on computers. I had to earn my own money to buy the computers and the video games that I really wanted. So I already had an attraction to, to business. And I also just had an attraction to business as a way of commercial rhetoric, as a way of being persuasive towards other people. If you can sell them something, you've convinced them of something. That to me had a real appeal and real attraction. Um, so learning business was just um, a straight shot from there. Mm -hmm. um, I always was very curious about how companies operate. And like I worked at a bunch of companies before entering Copenhagen Business School. And you know what? I, I didn't have the highest appreciation for how they were run. Um, in fact, I thought I learned a lot of very valuable lessons entirely in the negative space, not about what we were supposed to do, but what I certainly did not want to do mm -hmm. if I was ever going to have the chance to call the shots in a business. So Learning the fundamentals of business, learning the fundamentals of accounting and, and so forth was just prerequisite, I thought, to be able to think intelligently about this and prepare myself that if I ever got the shot to work for myself, which I already had a suspicion was going to be the way it turned out. Because, as I said, I worked for other people. Uh, it wasn't me. Let's just put it like that. I had too many opinions. They were too loud and I couldn't keep my mouth shut. And that often got me in trouble with people who actually <laughs> did call the shots, right? You're like, who the hell are you? You earn a salary here. You are not only do you earn a salary, you are a junior. Why should I listen to you? Right? Um, so I thought like, well, they're right. Why should mm -hmm. they listen to me? Let me find a place where I can listen to myself. 
where I can do things like how I want to do them and express that in a way of operating a business, designing a business, configuring a business like I would see fit from first principles. Right. So you basically were a bit unemployable, so to speak, right? That. Yes. I mean, I think um, I was employable to the sense that like I could fake it. Mm-hmm. I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. Like, I could fake being a reasonable employee. Sure. Yeah. Um, but not for that long. Let's just put it like that. Um, and then I just thought, you know what? I am probably not going to be happy until I arrive at a place where I can't call my own shots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to get good either. I mean, I worked uh, at a number of, of, of companies and I felt like I, I wasn't learning enough, fast enough. Yeah. And you eventually then found that path to call your own shots. You, in 2004, you co-founded 37 Signals, the company behind Basecamp and, and Hey. And for Basecamp, basically, quote unquote, it was you were desperate to stop embarrassing yourself in front of clients was the reason why you actually started Basecamp. Can you elaborate a bit more why you actually started Basecamp and what the problem was that you were solving back then? Sure. First, uh, just a bit of history. Uh, 37 Signals was actually started in 1999 by three guys in the, um, in the U.S., I wasn't part of that. It was started as a design consultancy. I joined up with uh, Jason while it was still a design consultancy. And then in 2000, and well, really in 2004, after the launch of Basecamp, we essentially gave up the design consultancy and turned this into a product company, but kept the name. Mm-hmm. Um, but Basecamp got started as part of that process that um, we were trying to manage projects over email, as everyone does, right? Almost every project still to this day and back then was started over email. Mm-hmm. You start talking to the client about what they need and this, that, and the other thing. And then suddenly you realize, oh, we got to add someone else on. Oh, shit, now they don't have the whole context. They don't have the right file. Did I send you the right version of that file? Um, where, did, where did we actually decide on this thing? Oh, we have all these tasks we were supposed to do. Did they all get done? There are all these questions where email is a wonderful way to start projects. It's an absolutely horrid way to run projects. And most people find out when something falls through the cracks. Yeah. When some ball is dropped and you look like an idiot um, because something doesn't get done or the, the wrong version or you can't get someone new involved with it. All these problems we have with email. And we thought, you know what? We know how to build software. Can't we just build some damn software to solve this problem? And that's what we started to do. And initially, Basecamp was designed as a solution to our own problem for ourselves. It wasn't until halfway through the development process that we showed this to someone else in the industry, some friends in the industry, and like, hey, what do you think? And they were like, hey, take my money. Can, can I buy this too? And we're like, oh, okay, well, I guess this could be a product. Let's try that. And we turned it into a product, launched it, and had some very modest aspirations for what kind of product it was going to be. We are going to continue the consulting firm and so on. And I remember our initial target was if after a year we could just be doing $4,000 a month in revenue, this would be a nice supplement to the consulting business. Mm -hmm. And of course, it took about three weeks until we um, secured the $4,000 a month and then it kept growing from there. But still, it took about a year before we really committed and say, like now this... Basecamp can pay all our salaries, which, by the way, were only the salaries of four people at the time. And those salaries were quite modest. But we reached that milestone that we could pay our salaries. We didn't have to do the consulting anymore. We could focus 100% on the software business. And that's what we did. So that's a very organic way of growing the company, right? To say, hey, we want to grow there until we can afford it. And then we switch completely. Yeah, it did not require other people's money. We built the business bootstrapped in the sense that we had an existing business. We ran the consulting stuff and we did not give that up until this new thing, the side project, was doing well enough that it could pay the bills. And that, by the way, was not even the first side project. Jason and I had worked on this other thing, a um, software product on the Internet to manage your book collection Mm -hmm. uh, called uh, Single File. And you know what? That was sort of this modest success where we had some signups, but by no means enough to pay our salaries. Mm-hmm. And it was okay. We didn't have to suddenly go like, oh, how are we going to pay rent? Because we did this project as a side business and we continued to do the consulting thing, what brought in the quote unquote real money that paid the bills. Mm-hmm. So we ran no risk. 
And I think this is one of those fallacies of entrepreneurship is that we think of these entrepreneurs as people just taking extreme risk. We never took any extreme risk. If Basecamp had been a failure, so what? We would just have continued to service the consulting clients we had, and we would have tried another idea. It would have been fine. Mm -hmm. And I think the, that path, that slower path, the patient path, is a far more realistic path for far more people. And I think this is what I really don't like about the entrepreneurship getting wound up in this extreme risk rhetoric, because it really gatekeeps who's then able to do entrepreneurship. It's only the kind of people who see themselves as being extremely risky, who can bet it all. Um, and you know what? There's tons of people with great ideas and great capacities who are not like that. I was not like that. Um, and we built this business as a side project. And I think it's still a wonderful way of doing it. I don't find a lot of people who have the patience for that, unfortunately, still. Um, everyone seems to be in a damn hurry, uh, raise a bunch of money so that we can get off the ground as quickly as possible so we can hire a bunch of people. So, so we can really take the big swing for the big fences kind of bullshit when the reality is uh, plenty of successes were made out of these tiny, humble beginnings. Um, I mean, some of those uh, entrepreneurial myths that I really like was like a Nike getting started from the back of a van or Apple getting started by these put your computer together yourself things, right? This notion that we don't have to like snap our fingers and boom, here's a real serious company that can do all yeah. the things. Um, if we start as side projects, we get to take more chances with lower risk, which means more people can do it. And then if that thing is successful, um, we don't need other people's money, which right. is the most wonderful place to be as an entrepreneur is right. to not need other people's money. Now, fully accept that's not realistic for everyone. Sure. Um, some people do need other people's money and there are different ways to go about that. But if you can get around it, mm -hmm. wow. That's, uh, yeah, the real angle. Have you ever actually considered, you know, in the early days to take on external money? Was that even a discussion that you had together with Jason? Uh, yes, it was. And the reason for that was we started this thing bootstrap, which meant it was growing organically, which meant it was growing slowly. Basecamp wasn't this huge multi-million dollar thing in nine months. No, it wasn't. Uh, by the time we had some traction and we got some attention and so on, it was still a small business. Mm -hmm. And when you run a small business and venture capitalists knock at your door and say like, hey, would you like $40 million? Who the fuck would not be tempted? Yeah, right? Course. Like. We haven't made any money, not any real money anyway. Mm -hmm. Here's someone dangling a huge check in front of you. <laughs> I mean, you would really have to be unhumanly strong to not at least consider that. Mm -hmm. uh, thankfully, we just considered it and we had seen enough. This was quite recently after the dot-com boom and bust that both Jason and I had gone through and we had seen what happened to all these companies that took all this venture capital money, then set fire to it and then flamed out. And we were intent that that was not going to be us. So we were really very successfully inoculated against the lure of that money. If we hadn't had that experience, I'm sure we would have took, taken the money. Well, Again, sure. who, who would look at $40 million and say, like, yeah, sure. no thanks. Yeah. Um, you have to be exceptionally either inoculated through experience or, or strong. And we were not that strong. We were just inoculated through experience. But mm -hmm. we had all these venture capitals. They showed up. I think we counted like 42 or something that had showed up and like were very eager to invest. And we even had a, a couple of acquisition sniffers show up and like, hey, do you want to talk about this thing coming from all those uh, big tech companies at the time? But we said no to all of them because we were on a good path, but we were still tempted. Mm -hmm. as we still hadn't made any quote-unquote real money. Right. Um, we we're paying our bills, we we're paying our modest salaries, but, I mean, it's not like we were rich or anything. And then we had this conversation with uh, Jeff Bezos in 2005. I think he reached out, his team reached out, and we were like, yeah, not interested. And he was like, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not a venture capitalist. I'm not doing this for a venture capital reason. I'm just interested in investing in companies I find interested in. And we're like... All right, I guess we can take a meeting with freaking Jeff Bezos. Um, fine. And we, we did. And they talked more. And they were like, oh, can we invest? And so on. we were like, yeah, but we don't need the money. That's the thing. Well, you're going to invest. So what? We, we have enough money to pay the bills for the employees that we have. And we don't need more. We're happy where we are. And then we're like, well, what if we just gave you the money? As in, what if we just bought secondaries? 
what if we just bought a steak from either of you and you'd get to keep the money, the two of you, Jason and, and David? And we're like, all right, go on. <laughs> Tell me more. And we, we discussed this, and we were once again going like, yeah, let's just sell, tell him some bullshit number, like a ludicrous valuation that no sane person would um, find palatable and might even find offensive. And we did. We wrote down this one piece of paper, like, here are our numbers, and here's our stupid valuation. He was like, okay, more or less. We wow. haggled a little at the, at the last uh, decimals, but we were like, okay, I mean, this seems dumb. Um, and even his own financial team at the time were like, nah, that's a bad deal. That, they do not have anything to prove that they would be worth what they're saying they're worth. And he was like, yeah, I don't care. I'm just going to do it anyway. Of course. I mean, for us, it was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. For Jeff, even at the time, I mean, it was couch change, yeah, right? right? Like it was, you shake his couch or, or the interest rate fluctuates a little bit and it, it moves far more money than what he was investing into. But for us, it was a big deal because suddenly we were millionaires. Yeah. We were legit millionaires. And what that did was another inoculation was, okay, now we definitely don't need any temptation. Now we are not tempted anymore. Right. So a venture capital shows up with, oh, I'll invest $40 million in your business. And we're like, so what? I already... I'm already a millionaire, and I'm not going to then take on a boss who's going to tell me what to do. Because that was the other condition of the sale to, to Jeff was that, like, hey, you don't get to tell us what to do. And he's like, I don't want to tell you what to do. I have a fucking business to run. Uh, I just want to be involved, and this is interesting. And, like, it was on completely different dynamics um, and almost like a hobby thing. I mean, really was a hobby thing for him. And that worked out well for us. We had some great conversations with Jeff, especially because like, he was at the complete other end of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Like here we are, we're bootstrapped and we're growing slowly. Right. And Jeff was the poster child for setting money to, or setting fire to the most amount of money, um, having these crazy valuations growing incredibly quickly. And we're like, this is interesting. I don't need to surround myself with a bunch of people who agree with me on everything. I find it far more interesting to survive, surround myself with people who don't agree with me on everything. This is where I'm going to learn something. This is where we're going to learn something. And we had a great time doing that. And I'd say we did learn some things. And then we got to be left alone to run the kind of business that we wanted to run for the long term. And here we are. Uh, let's see. What is that? Uh, 14 years late? No, more than that. 16 years later, Jeff has made his money back five, six times. Still owns his stake. It turned out to be a wonderful investment, even on purely financial terms for him. And it was a great setup for us as well. We never again had the temptation to take other people's money. We didn't take any venture capital. And we got to build the kind of business we always wanted to build while still having the safety margin that if it all went up to in smoke uh, five minutes later, which yeah. it does all the time, sure. we wouldn't have to think about like how we were going to pay rent. That's fascinating on so many different levels. Like not only the story about Jeff was personally motivated to invest basically, but also that you got some money off the table to take out that stress and the temptation to actually, you know, have all the offers flying in and not taking them. That's really a a good way to lower the stress on a personal level and focus on building a successful company. Yes. And I think that focus on lowering the stress was really key because I was never interested in building a stressful business. Mm -hmm. I was interested in building a long-term business. And if you're going to build a long-term business that you're going to be in for 10, 20 years, if you build a stressful one at the same time, you're going to fucking die, right? No human ends up healthy on the other side of a 10, 20 year stress march. Um, So we built the kind of business that allowed us to do other things that allowed us to work 40 hour weeks and say, yeah, that's enough. Um, let me have some hobbies. Let me have a life. Let me exercise. Let me have family. Let me have all the other things that make life worth living. Yeah. It's not this minat- um, singly focused pursuit on the business mm-hmm. that it could be so much more than that. And, by the way, we were also building a business and it was growing very quickly and doing very well. Thank you very much. So it wasn't like it was a trade-off that like, uh, as we were being accused of in the early days, oh, that, that's cute. You're running a lifestyle business. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, we are. Why would I run a business that's not compatible with a lifestyle? What kind of business are you running <laughs> that is not a lifestyle business in the sense that it's compatible with a life with style, yeah. right? Why would you give those things up? That sounds just mad to me. Yeah. So we never did. And it's funny because, especially in the United States, 
people were incredulous of this. They kept going like, yeah, 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 you say you work 40 hours a week, but in the beginning, I'm sure you were really... And we were like, no. In the beginning, we worked less. When we built Basecamp, I was in school at the same time, and I was working 10 hours a week on it. So um, not only is it possible to build a business without pouring in the 80 or 100 hours of mythical... Uh, labor that everyone seems to be so excited about bragging of in the U.S. You can also build a great one, a business that has all the impact you could stomach, all the impact that I had appetite for anyway. Mm-hmm. Build some great products, build a great business that did well by employees and customers and ourselves and was there in a setup that would work for the long term. Mm-hmm. Where here I am 20 years later, I'm like, yeah, pretty nice. Right. Still great. I'll, I'm, I could totally see doing another 10. I don't sure. know how long it's going to be, but I'm not going to quit because I built a shit business I don't want to work at, and I can't wait to come out. I can't wait to exit. No. This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade, and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. But when you actually started out, how did you split your time? Because if you work 10 hours a week on, on that specific side project, you got to be ruthless in prioritizing your time and saying no to a lot of stuff, I imagine. Yes, constraints are liberating. I think this was one of the most important lessons we learned very early on was you can get a tremendous amount of stuff done in 10 hours a week if you spend them right. Mm -hmm. If you squander them, you get nothing done. And that's very quickly apparent, particularly when you only have 10. Sure. Anything that's sort of like not moving the ball forward stands out. Because you squandered those hours and there's only 10 of them, quite quickly you've squandered a whole week and we haven't moved forward that week. So you get very quickly into this loop where you're like, all right, I got 10 hours. I got to make them count. I got to make them count in terms of tools that I'm working with. This was what Ruby on Rails came out of. This is why it was so productive. Because it had to be productive enough that a single programmer in 10 hours a week could build Basecamp. That was the constraints it was being constructed under and the same goes for the rest of the business what does it take how much uh, how many meetings do we need to have how much do we need to discuss decisions how quickly can we move and you find out as Derek Sivers um, says in his wonderful post one of the most frequent essays that I refer to is there is no speed limit which is also stated as the standard paces for chumps you don't need to move at the standard pace. You can move far, far quicker than the standard pace if you're willing to give up a bunch of extra stuff that doesn't actually need to be get done. And you just focus on what are the things that absolutely positively need to happen for us to move forward this week. And you find out 10 hours a week is actually a fair slice. Right. And when you go from 10 hours to 40 hours, you do not get 10 or four, four times as much done. You are lucky if you even get twice as much done, the the curve um, has a really steep cliff, which is one of the reasons I always thought, what are you talking about 80 hours a week? 40 hours a, uh, a week is already a feast compared to the 10 hours a week I was living on and we build our entire business on. Mm-hmm. So this really gave us the confidence to believe that we didn't have to work our entire lives away to build a good business. We had built... Uh, base camp, the thing that is still here today, the thing that has uh, earned hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue over the years we've been in business, that thing, it was built in 10 hours a week. Wow. Now, of course, it was the final destination and we've sent the high more, blah, 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 all these other things, right? But you can get there. Mm-hmm. And if you can get there on a single programmer working 10 hours a week with 2003 technology <laughs> at 2003 prices... Are you fucking telling me that in 2022, when everything is like a thousand or 10,000 times faster, cheaper, better, you can't do it? That's just bullshit. Right. Yeah. So this idea that you can build something yourself if you shake and bake with the main ingredients, which is personal competence, you have to be able to build things yourself, mm-hmm. and a bit of time. 
is absolutely still present. So this is one of these reasons why I still believe that this bootstrap angle is so possible and that the side project way of building is so desirable. I must admit I have not been very successful in convincing other people of having that <laughs> level of patience. Um, but even so, just setting that horizon can at least inspire someone to think like, okay, do you know what? I want to start a startup. Maybe I don't need 20 people. Mm-hmm. If those guys with four people working it as a side project um, could build a business, eh, maybe I can get going with like just the two, three, four of us. Mm-hmm. And we can actually build it ourselves. And then we don't need that much money. Even if you are raising some money, right. um, we can get further. And perhaps we don't need to get on the venture capital train. Do you think that this will now change, that more and more people will embark on the bootstrapping business setup? Or will this always sort of stay a niche play in the startup ecosystems? Well, the wonderful thing is, now, right now, it's basically the only play because there is no money. Yeah. The, the freezer has shot. We are in the ice winter. And it is, uh, this is the most difficult time to raise money as it's been since the 2008 financial crisis. And perhaps in some degrees, it's worse. So right now, I think entrepreneurs are being blessed with an environment that do not allow them to take the quote-unquote easy route of just raising a ton of money. Because those things are, at least for a lot of people, it's no longer an option. And therefore, you must look at the only other option there is. Build the fucking thing yourself. Off your own money, off your own time, off your own competence. And I think that will turn out to be a blessing for some people. Not all people. And some people will spend a bunch of time and they'll regret it. And they go like, oh, it's also because I can't raise money. It's because blah, 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 all these other things. Yeah, just, okay. If that's what you need to tell yourself, fine. All right. But there will also be people who will start the business in this bootstrapped way because it's the only damn option there is. And they'll come out on the other side and go like, oh, man, I'm so fucking glad I started it now. Yeah. I'm so glad that we got going in 2022 when cheap venture capital, well, not cheap, it's never cheap, when easy venture capital was available. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of those reasons you look back on many of the greatest companies. They were all started during recessions. They were all started during bad economic times because it teaches you to be um, prudent. It teaches you to be scrappy. It teaches you a bunch of really important life lessons. It teaches you how to not spend all the fucking money, to spend less than what you make and turn it into a good business. And ultimately, long term, these are the foundations of any healthy business. Right. Yeah. You actually also started another side project in 2020. Hey, the email service. This didn't start out of embarrassment, but more out of frustration. What was wrong or still is wrong with email that you were motivated to start? Hey, yeah, so I've been um, using email since 93, maybe. Um, And the last big innovation in email came in 2004 when Gmail launched Mm -hmm. and you had unlimited space and you had all these other things and it was free. Well, we thought it was free. We thought, (laughs) no, man, they're so nice. At Google, oh man, they're so nice. They just give the whole world email for free for the goodness of their soul. Yeah. No, Don't that, be evil, right? Yeah, that, that wasn't actually what happened. Um, but what did happen was that Gmail launched in 2004 and very quickly became essentially a monopoly on email. It took a few years, but um, they have had a monopoly on email for a very, very long time, mm-hmm. which meant that they had no real competition, which has meant that there's been no real innovation in email by the time we launched Hey for more or less 16 years, at least at the service level. There's been innovative clients that's worked on top of something like Gmail, but to really rethink the email experience, we believed that we actually had to run the service. So we thought, you know what, I've been using email now for 17 years or whatever much it was by the time we started working on Hey, and I have about 5,000 ideas for how this shit should be better. (laughs) I spend so much of my time in email. After Basecamp, email is the thing I spend the most time in. I spend a lot of time at Basecamp. This is where we coordinate all our work. This is how we run the company itself. Mm -hmm. But then after that, if I talk to anyone who does not work at 37 Signals, I use email. Mm -hmm. I send and receive a ton of emails. But what was happening was I was spending an absolute undue amount of my time doing that, managing that in Gmail. Because one of the fundamental issues was anyone who had my email address had my attention. At their leisure, at their time of choosing they could send me an email and pling 
a thing would pop up in my inbox and I'd have to at least look at the headline. What an invasion of my attention. Why would I give everyone in the damn world a license to invade my attention and my brain of their choosing? Now that I've been using Hey for two years, the old way of using emails just seems psychotic, simply psychotic. And especially the way that most people use email, which is that not only do they allow people to invade their inbox, they allow them to invade their physical space by having notifications turned on. Some stranger gets your email address and they email you and your goddamn pocket starts buzzing. It's just so wild. That's madness. It is yeah. really madness when you start thinking about it in those terms. And if you had told someone from the 1960s, they're like, you know what? Let me tell you about the future. The future is such that if someone gets this little address from it, your pocket will buzz whenever they see fit. They go <laughs> like, that sounds, why would anyone do that to themselves? That sounds like some sort of torture experiment. Yeah. And I think in some ways it is. We just normalize it. Oh, yeah, this is how it is. Okay, fine. Yeah, not fine. We can change that. It does not have to be that way. So that's yeah. one of the features in Hey that I thoroughly enjoy, which is something we call the screener, which is that no individual email um, will reach your inbox unless you've said, I want to hear from this person. So first right. they go into this quarantine box that does not buzz your damn pocket. Right. And it's held there until you see fit maybe once a day to have a look at your screen and go like, hey, here's some new senders I haven't heard from before. Mm -hmm. And you simply get yes, no. Do I want this person to have access to my inbox? And you know what? I say no far more than I say yes. And it is such a joy to say no, especially not just to the things that are sort of borderline spam, but to the kind of persistent people who are not spam, where you have your email address and wrote you a semi-tailored email address, which is usually salespeople and recruiters and all these other people. You feel like in the old paradigm, I felt like an obligation to reply. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily to the first email, but to the second one. Yeah. Because they'd say, like, hey, I sent you that email last week. Have, have you seen it? Right. And there's just this human reaction of reciprocity. Like, oh, I owe this person a reply. No, you don't fucking owe this person a reply. They invaded your inbox on their own volition. You do not owe them a reply. But with Gmail and most traditional email systems, you just kind of get looped in. So you end up spending a bunch of your time dealing with email you don't fundamentally want, which is why people hate email. Or rather, why they think they hate email. What they actually hate is how email is experienced through something like Gmail. Yeah, that's shit. It's worth your despise. Mm -hmm. But email does not have to work like that. We can change how email works. And if we change how email works, which is what we did with Hey, it becomes an actually enjoyable experience. In fact, I would go so far as to say through Hey, email is probably my favorite protocol on the Internet. Wow. It is the way I communicate long form yeah. with people in actual full sentences, full paragraphs. There are not tweets. There are not some, and there's a connection there, and it's real, um, and it's asynchronous. It's got all these qualities of good, solid communication. Mm -hmm. The problem was that that good, solid, high quality communication was being spoiled and diluted by all the shit that ended up in your mailbox. So you'd be like, oh, here's a letter from, from someone I really like corresponding with, next to some ad, next to some person screaming at me, next to some uh, someone asking for money, next to all this crap. And we've just put it in the same box and you're like, eh, these things don't go together. I want the things like the emails from the people I actually care about. I want to listen. Let me put that in this box over here and I can be excited about opening that. And then all yeah. the other stuff, I, I don't need to get that. Right. I love this. Your service comes at the very attractive price point of $99 per year. Do you also ever see a scenario where the email service could be free, for example, as you know, people are used to from all the other services where you just don't pay in dollars, but with other means of payment? Yeah, that's exactly the point, right? No email service is free. You yeah. always pay. Right. And if you don't pay with, with money, you pay with attention, you pay with your privacy, you pay with your sanctity of, of the brain, as in using something like Gmail, which is essentially this um, sort of time pocket. What was the best email system we could come up with in 2004? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fucking wonderful. For 2004, 2022, absolutely not. Yeah. Were the best ideas we ever had about email conceived in 2004? What? No. We sell a product. Just a, well, we sell a service. When you buy that service, like you're the customer. 
I don't have to sell you attention. I don't have to sell you privacy because it's so much simpler of a transaction to just settle your thing that you actually enjoy and want to use. And then I get to keep the money you give me. Can we just make transactions like that that do not have to go through a web of secondary providers and tracking and all the other bullshit that's um, part of quote-unquote free products? Yes, I think so. Now, that also means that Hey is never going to have a billion users. Right, like there's just not a billion people who are going to pay ninety nine dollars a year for email, but we don't need a billion people to pay us, right? If we can just have many tens of thousands, or maybe even a few hundred thousands, that's a phenomenal business. The size of scale that we would be thrilled and are thrilled to run. Um, and then we have to we have a customer relationship, and then I don't have to to find all these sleazy ways to monetize. This is one of the worst fucking words in the dictionary. <laughs> monetize, right? Whenever you hear the word monetize, just think something sleazy is going on, right? Because monetize is, you don't say monetize if I'm selling you a product or a service, right? Like you just, I'm selling you something. Monetize means like I'm selling something else and I'm selling it to someone else. And it's usually a sleazy operation, oh, right? One thing that you recently announced for both businesses, Hey, and also Basecamp is that you're leaving the cloud. So email was wrong. You fix it yourself. Cloud also seems to be wrong. So you leave the cloud. What is wrong with the cloud? So I got really excited about cloud about five, six years ago. And one of the reasons I got really excited about was that the pitch was it's going to be so much simpler to run your operations. You're going to need far fewer people. You're going to have far less complexity in operating. And I go like, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, that means that we, with the same size team, can service more services, more uh, customers. Wonderful. After five years of running essentially an A-B test, because we never took off um, some of our Basecamp services. We continued to run those on our own hardware. And then Hey and some of the other services we ran in the cloud. So we really got a great split test. We're like, yeah, those promises never came through. Mm -hmm. It was not easier. It did not require fewer people. And it was a metric ton more expensive. So the entire value proposition of the cloud was something we tried very hard to make work over many years and ultimately came to the conclusion, uh, it, yeah, it doesn't work for us. And us meaning in a middle-sized company that have uh, enough people who know how to operate servers because you need those people anyway to operate your cloud operations. Um, and you have a somewhat stable and consistent um, usage story. Like if you're an e-commerce store, if you're Shopify and Black Friday is like, 300 times the load that it normally is, right? Are you going to buy all the servers it's going to take to service Black Friday and then have them for all the other 364 days out of the year where that doesn't make sense? Eh, maybe not, right? Yeah. Cloud can really work there. Mm -hmm. For us, that's just not what it is. Yeah. Um, we have an incredibly predictable load, and so does most SaaS companies. Most SaaS companies are not the Shopify's of the world. There are some of there are. There are some of the, uh, that have spikes, and cloud can make sense there. It makes sense to rent if you don't need to use it all the time. It does not make sense to rent if you need to use it all the time, if you need to use it for years on end. And of course it doesn't. Everyone knows that if you rent something for five years, you're going to pay more than if you had just bought it. Of course that's true, right? So we finally came to that conclusion that the economics didn't add up, the complexity story did not add up, our usage profile was not a good fit for cloud, and neither is the usage stories of a lot of other companies. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have actually had already realized that. They were just kind of quiet about it yeah. because there was this narrative going, the cloud is the future, and running your own hardware is running like running your own power plant. Who the fuck runs their own power plant? You just connect <laughs> to the grid, and then there's watts coming yeah. out of the wall, right? Yeah. That's just not true at all. Mm -hmm. um, these servers are just someone else's servers you rent. Mm -hmm. And if you have a business that can afford and is stable enough and is proven enough that you can buy things, you should maybe just consider buying things. Right. Again, if you're a startup and you don't know whether the idea is going to work, are you going to buy a bunch of hardware? Yeah, maybe not. Although even in that case, I think it's worth questioning that logic a bit because if you are a startup and you don't know whether it's going to work or not, you also don't need a lot. When we started Basecamp back in 2000, and, or when we launched Basecamp in 2004, we were on one single shared host. 
it was $249 a month. That's that was not the thing. Like if it hadn't worked, okay, fine. Um, so still run the math, but I can more easily see that it makes sense in the early days because some of the complexity, at least you do take out of it when you do run uh, cloud, especially these full platform as a service things where you're not running on um, the VMs directly, you're running through services. Okay, fine. Just know that if the thing you're building works and you need to scale up and get a lot of customers, holy mm. shit, does it get expensive quickly on the cloud. Yeah. And when it does, um, you should think about it quite early in the process. There's a lot of startups who've essentially been killed by cloud expenses because they ran out of runway much faster than they would have if they had mm. switched horse to owning just a modest amount of their own hardware. Um, so for us, at least, it was just clear. Okay, that doesn't make sense. And then the other thing that didn't make sense or really just pissed me off was we I'd see these announcements all the time. Amazon US East 1 goes down and you're like half the internet is offline. And you're like, what? <laughs> Wasn't the whole damn purpose of the internet? Wasn't the design that DARPA came up with that we were going to have this resilient setup where everyone were these autonomous nodes and it wasn't interconnected? And if a damn nuclear bomb went off in Washington, D.C., you'd still be online in Miami? That was supposed to be the design, right? And we've essentially squandered some of that advantage some of the time by centralizing so much of the internet in the hands of three, four, or five companies. Mm-hmm. that now run these mega operations, these hyperscale operations, where if things go down, sometimes many other things go down with them. And we need, and in my opinion, owe the internet to retain the resilient design it was intended for. Yeah. I also just think on an economic sense that handing over the entire internet or the operations of the internet to five companies, it's going to land you in a uh, monopoly, duopoly, or golem blah blah set up where a, a bunch of uh, mega companies control everything and we've seen some extents of that where um, given the fact that particularly AWS runs so much of the internet suddenly they become an arbiter of what's allowed on the internet mm-hmm. because now there's just these five companies that control what's there and they're quite easy to petition people go like why is Amazon allowing X to be on the internet and they go like, oh, maybe we should just cut off X that's a lot harder to do if the internet is still in its original decentralized configuration, which, hey, was why it fucking took off in the first place. If the internet had been a permission-based business in the first place, it would never have become the internet that it is today. If the internet had worked like the App Store, where we have to plead and beg with <laughs> Apple or Google yeah. to be in commerce, to be in business, the internet would never have happened. What a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had your fair share there on discussing with these companies oh yes <laughs> one thing that i also want to talk about you you have you know plenty of experience running your company you also do things differently as we obviously heard by now and one thing that is currently sort of a, of a trend that many see or identify is the whole trend around quiet quitting what do you think about that is that something that really becomes a problem in in these days when when working for any company potentially that people are still employed at your company, but basically, you know, emotionally, they resigned and are still employed by you. I have a hard time relating to the quiet quitting concept because I'm like, what the fuck are the bosses doing? If they can't tell whether someone have quiet quit or not, why are they in charge of that person? If they cannot discern whether this person is doing good work at a regular pace or not, why are they the manager? Isn't that what the manager is supposed to do? To know whether the work that's being carried out is good or not good, carried out at a reasonable pace? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some of that. Now, I understand also there are other factors in it. Why are, if, if you work at a company that you feel like treats you like total shit, and um, you might go like, well, I don't feel like I have any allegiance to this company, whatever, I'm just going to phone it in. I go like, I can understand where that comes from, but I think you're... As whoever it is, Khaled is saying, like, you end up playing yourself, man. If you end up quiet quitting, that is, you sit at a, a job and you work there for eight hours a week and you do the bare minimum, um, or worse, you do shit work, yeah. are you going to get any better? Are you going to improve? Are you going to be happy? No, you're not. You're going to be a miserable fucking prick. That's what you're going to be, right? So I think it's just you're playing yourself with the quiet quitting thing. But the problem starts with 
managers, if they don't know whether the person working for them is doing good work at a reasonable pace or not. Yeah. Um, because if someone is not doing good work at a reasonable pace, yeah, they should be fired. Well, ultimately, hopefully sure. you start with a conversation, trying to figure it out. Can we solve the problem? Yeah. Can we do all the things? But if someone is simply just not interested in those things, like, okay, mm -hmm. fine. Um, go find another job somewhere. A company, our company, any company, I'd hope, would be like, hey, this is for people who'd like to work here. We're yeah. interested in the work and so on. Does it mean you have to love the work? Absolutely not. I think there's absolutely a bar there where some entrepreneurs are so in love with their own business that they think everyone they hire will be in love with it too, which is just delusional. Absolutely. No one's going to love your baby as much as you. Yeah. And also, it's not their fucking baby, right? So... If, if, the, if the company does explosively well and whatever, yeah, the founders stand to get the m most out of it. So it's only reasonable to expect that they're going to ha have the most emotional investment in that company. Mm -hmm. So you are delusional as a founder if you think that anyone you pay a salary is going to have the same beating heart for the business as you do. Yeah. But like they should show up and do proper good work. This is, I think, an absolute key to meaning in life. That you do good, solid work that you're proud of. This is energizing in the in the rest of your life. If you, I've worked at companies where if I wasn't quite quitting, I was just frustrated at least. And it's a draining experience. It is not an experience that leads you with more energy to pursue the rest of your life or your exit plan when the day is over, when the work day is over. You end up just being deflated because it is depressing to work like that. Mm -hmm. So I don't think quiet quitting works for either side of it. It is a symptom of some ills that are absolutely present. Like if I was having to work at one of these awful companies that use bossware, for example, that spy on their employees and take pictures of their <laughs> desktops and all the other bullshit that's been going on. Yeah, I'd probably also be inclined to go like, fuck this. Yeah. I'm If I'm not out, I'm at least mentally checked out and I'm going to quit as quickly as I can. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of a two-way dance there that I, like, I understand it, yeah. but... Yeah, you also got to act up on it because otherwise you're just going to harm yourself. As oh, you exactly. Quiet quitting. Okay, fine. If this is like a bridge to somewhere better. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, part of the trouble right now is that like all those bridges are being blown up at the moment with <laughs> seemingly every other tech company is announcing layoffs and so on. Yeah. But all the more reason that you should be working on yourself and improving yourself. If the competition is going to be a little stiffer after being ludicrously lax for I don't know how many years for you to get your next great job, right? Wouldn't you want to be in fit fighting shape? Sure. Yeah, 100%. Now, David, you created multiple companies. You wrote four best-selling books. You also occasionally race in the FIA. You're married. You have three kids. How do you split your time these days? Well, first of all, I'd say I did all those things over 20 years. No one does all that shit in like five seconds, right? <laughs> and a lot of this mythology around entrepreneurship and business success is the delusion that it happened overnight. It never does. Every single thing you see that went like, wow, that came out of nowhere. There's a 10-year story behind that in almost all cases. It is exceptionally rare that someone just shows up cold and just boom, here's the thing that's going to change the world. Nah, doesn't work like that. And all the things that I did, I did them in episodes. So when I write a book with Jason, we take three months off from all the other things that we do. And then we focus on that for some amount of time, a decent amount of time a week. And then we finish that. And then that's a done thing, right? Like all the books I have written are not impediments on my time today. Those are artifacts of past investments of time. And I've always thought, and we've always thought, do you know what? 40 hours is enough for work. This is how there's room for all these other things. If you only work 40 hours only, I mean, that's already a lot. <laughs> if you work 40 hours a week, you know what? You have weekends to go to the racetrack and get good at race cars and do that. And that's what I did. And you have time for your kids and you have time for family and you have time for hobbies and you have time for friends and all these other things. You have time for life. You don't put life on hold just to pursue work, at least not for anything longer than a short sprint. Now, again, there are short sprints that are worthwhile to get over some hump but if you measure sprints in years, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> That's not a fucking sprint, uh, right? A sprint is a short duration where you really push it to the max. But if you are in that zone the whole time, uh, you're not going to be able to do the other things. Now, there are some things that quote unquote make it work. 
Mm-hmm. There are people working an awful lot. Elon Musk is dominating damn well every headline at the moment. He's a person who clearly have a very different um, vision of how he wants to spend in life. And bless him for that. It is great that we have some people who are interested in sending rockets to Mars and converting all cars in the world to electric. That's great. They are very few and far in between. The vast, vast, vast majorities of people in the world and entrepreneurs work on far more mundane things where the continuation of the damn species does not depend on whether they work 40 or 80 hours a week. On point, yeah. What do you actually look forward personally for, you know, in the future? What are you excited about in the future? I think that's also one of those frames that I don't like. I'm excited about the fucking present. I'm excited about being in the now and enjoying myself. Mm -hmm. I am excited about having a setup that allows me to enjoy today and tomorrow, not to live this deferred living where I am working, not really liking it for some eventual payoff. And then I can do the other thing that I really want to do. If there's a thing I really want to do, I'll, I'll just do that. Right. So I've tried to set up the company and my lifestyle and my situation in such a way that I mostly like what I do most days. Not all days. Some days fucking suck. They always do. Some weeks suck. And occasionally, rarely, maybe even a month will suck. Mm-hmm. But if I look back upon a whole damn year and think that sucked, I go like, no, no, no. I, I, I don't have that many. There's not even a hundred allotted to me and far, far less than that of the good ones. Um, so if I'm going to wake up on the last day and think, you know what? This was well spent. I got to make most of my time count now, not in the future. Yeah. So this sense of deferred living, this risk sense, this thing, I'm just going to eat shit all time. This is what a lot of the entrepreneurship mythology bullshit is about. It's like, oh, you got to be prepared to eat shit for 15 years. And then you're going to get your pot of gold. I'm like, yeah, what about all the people who then just eat the shit and don't get the gold? Yeah, they can then look back upon 15 years of eating shit and then they didn't get any gold. What kind of regret do you sit with on the last day when that's true, right? Yeah, Um, yeah, I wasn't interested in running those odds. Those odds seemed like um, really bad odds Mm -hmm. and highly likely because I don't think I'm that fucking special for me to come up short. Do work in a way where you wouldn't regret it even if it doesn't pan out. Would you say it's uh, also it's really about having a good balance and mainly having fun in the present moment, enjoying what you're doing, enjoying life? Fun is a key ingredient. But for me, even deeper than that is meaning. Mm-hmm. What I do have to give me meaning in a sort of deep existential sense. Am I expressing my human capacities in a way that I feel is worthwhile? Yeah. Am I working on things in a way that is gratifying, enjoyable? Does it give me access to the flow state where I'm really just focused and I am getting better and I'm reaching? Can I compare myself to myself and think like, man, I've progressed. I've learned something. I've become better. I've become smarter, wiser, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the time there should be fun, but like no amount of, this is all the whole thing about pursuit of happiness, right? Like we get these glimmers of happiness. No one is just a fucking smiling idiot all day long all week long, all month long, all year long. That is not a good measure because it is an absolutely unattainable measure. But can you find deep meaning in your life where you're fundamentally satisfied with how you've configured your existence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's achievable. That's possible. And it does not require you to be the richest, to be the best, to be the fastest, to be the smartest, to be any of those things, right? It requires you to be satisfied with where you've gotten. Mm-hmm. And for me, a lot of that satisfaction is derived from not outcomes, not goals met, but how I show up. Yeah. Do I show up as a diligent person who tries my damn best and then a bit more? Do I show up and try to do really great work with people I enjoy being around for customers I would like to sell to and feel like I offered them a reasonable deal? Again, immensely achievable for a lot of people. And that is a source of meaning that plenty of billionaires have not even achieved. Oh, yeah. I think that is a wonderful way to sort of wrap up the conversation. Before we do so, I have some rapid fire questions for you. I had to give you a question or different options to choose from. And you have to answer in one sentence. Let's go. Denmark or the US? 
easily these days, Denmark? Choose a baby. Uh, Ruby on Rails, Base Camp, or Hay. Ooh. Wonderful things. I don't have to choose. Yeah, you can do all of them. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Fair. What's your number one startup red flag? Because you also do investing. So for investing. People who want to talk about exits. Yeah. What does money mean to you? Freedom and independence. What excites you more, racing or entrepreneurship? Do both. Work a good week's time and race on the weekends. Yeah. And one thing I'm also curious is, what did having children teach you that building companies didn't? That there is far more meaning in life than work. Yeah, I love that. David, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for all the great stories and the great advice. All the best for the future. Thank you. This was a blast. And if anyone wants to follow up with the stuff I do, dhh.dk has links to everything. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.